3: Welcome to Forum from KQED. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. Why comedy and why now? That's the question that media and social change scholar Katie Borm Chatou poses at the outset of her book, A Comedian and an Activist Walk into a Bar, the Serious Role of Comedy in Social Justice. In it, she and co-author Lauren Feldman explore how comedy, by laying bare issues like racism, sexism, and inequality, can help us work toward bridging divides and achieving social change. We'll talk to her and comedian Nagin Farsad about how comedy helps us make sense of a world turned chaotic by the pandemic and a deeply divisive government. And we want to hear from you. Which comedians do you turn to these days and why? Email us at forum at kqed.org. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum from KQED. I'm Ariana Prale and Fermina Kim. Laughter is the best medicine, laugh to keep from crying, phrases we've all heard before and perhaps been leaning on now more than ever these days. And what about laughter and comedy to spark social change? My guests this hour believe that comedy can not only be a way to cope with trying times, but a unique force for change and pressing social justice challenges, a tool that can inject hope and optimism into seemingly hopeless problems. Joining me now to talk about this is Katie Boram chatu Executive Director at the Center for Media and Social Impact at American University, and she's co-author with Lauren Feldman of A Comedian and an Activist Walk into a Bar, the Serious Role of Comedy in Social Justice. Welcome to Forum, Katie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And I'm also joined by Nagin Farsad. She's a comedian and host of the podcast Fake the Nation, author of How to Make White People Laugh and a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Welcome to Forum, Nagin. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you both for joining me for this hour. Uh, So Katie, I want to start with you and why you and your co-author Lauren Feldman wanted to look at comedy in this light through the lens of its role in social justice and supporting social change.
4: Yeah, uh, thanks, that's a great opening question. Um, well, there, there are several reasons, let me try to streamline them somewhat. Uh, one reason that's really important to say is that Lauren and I have both studied, and in my case, studied and produced comedy for social change. And so both of us had more than a decade of really thinking about these issues in the context of shows like The Daily Show and Beyond And I was a producer for a long time for the legendary Norman Lear, who is such an important figure when we think about the use of comedy to really address social issues that can be tough for people to talk about. And so this was kind of in this, our professional DNA, but perhaps more importantly to the moment is that it's so clear that after the rise of The Daily Show You know in the sort of post millennial era say post 2004 and then we get into the social media era and the streaming era It was so clear that the rules were changing somewhat um, In terms of who was able to access the cultural landscape to really do comedy and also the rules for social justice were changing, right? so when we think about social change and movements of the analog century. It's not that they weren't creative. It has always been the role of art and creative culture in social movements and um, efforts for equity. But there was something different about the digital era that really required this kind of creativity. And so we could see that two things were happening. A, all these really exciting comedians were creating themselves on YouTube and then, um, you know, making their way into really big entertainment media brands and developing their own followings and really not censoring themselves and we're talking about people of color and Women people who have traditionally had a harder time in the the comedy marketplace and then at the same time we were watching this Moment in social justice activism really starting after 9 11 uh, and the iraq war and things like that and these kind these ideas were converging so we thought You know, there's something about the way the freedom and the the social critique and the imagination that comedy provides that is really a parallel to what social justice activists need to do, which is to provide a new lens with which to see social problems. But at the same time, we identified uh, in particular that when we looked around at social justice organizations who were doing really creative artistic resistance work, we still weren't seeing comedy being embraced as much as other art forms as a real mechanism for social justice. And so we actually wrote the book to say, you know, we should really take comedy quite seriously because as the research shows in our book, which I'm sure you'll ask me about, um, comedy works quite specifically when it comes to acting as a source of information and persuasion and mobilizing people. So really at the end of the day, we thought it was the perfect moment to inspire those of us who care about repairing the world and social equity. We thought it was important to inspire those kinds of thinkers with the idea that collaborating with comedians and leveraging comedy is a really good idea and not just a kind of silly idea on the side. So a lot of reasons for the book.
3: And so I want to play a clip um, that's from a recent episode of Last Week Tonight. John is hosted by comedian John Oliver, who's an extension out of, you know, The Daily Show. And I think is offering, you know, one of the lead examples of kind of bridging those two worlds, right? Um, And in this particular clip, he's taking on the subject of racist textbooks in schools. And we also hear a bit of historian Ibram Kendi in this clip as well.
0: Earlier this year, one historian flagged a pretty remarkable euphemism in a current Texas school book.
4: This is a picture, and the caption says, some U.S. settlers brought slaves to Texas to help work the fields and do chores. And,
0: you know, I don't, I don't think we should describe uh, slave labor as chores. Yeah, you're right. We probably shouldn't. Calling slave labor chores is a euphemism on par with calling Hitler a best-selling author with a side hustle, or JFK's assassination a bad hair day, or this a comedy show.
3: So that clip is interesting because John Oliver himself is pointing out the kind of the funny but not funny aspect of comedy and satire that addresses politics and social justice. You know, that like just calling this a comedy show is not the point. Um, And he's kind of like, sure, I'm a comedian and I've got jokes and also pay attention to what is happening right now.
4: Yeah. And I'll just add to that really quick really quickly, Ariana, if I could, to say that, you know, I love that clip. And we write quite a bit about John Oliver. He's actually the opening story of our book, a piece that he did about bail bonds in New York City that led to the mayor actually completely changing the policy on this issue, which was hardly new at that time. But what comedy does and what some of these particular artists are so good at doing, John Oliver is great at this, is um, he's also lowering our barrier to sort of cognitively grasping some of these topics that can be hard to work with. Now, we're not all historians, so we might not know exactly what is being talked about, but when a, a comedian, in order for the work to be funny, has to break down an idea to his essence in order to make it absurd. And so in doing that, some of that explanatory work is actually quite instructive and useful, and we can actually pay attention to something. And there's research that we talk about in our book where we show that um, in many cases when it comes to civic and social issues, when people learn about them or really process them first through comedy, they actually follow those topics more closely over time in journalistic and more serious forms of information. So in that way, comedy and journalism actually play this really symbiotic role. And so that, that clip is a really great
3: Yeah, part of the priming effect I know that you talk about as well of comedy. (laughs) Um, So, Nagin, I want to ask you, you identify as a, a social justice comedian. What does that mean to you? And what is your story of becoming a comedian and blending those worlds?
5: Uh, I mean, you know, I, it, when I started to do comedy, people would uh, would say to me all the time, oh, you're like a political comedian. And I'm like, well, you know, like I wasn't doing jokes about how, you know, uh, about Mitch McConnell and his chins or whatever. Like that to me is kind of like a political comedian. I was like, I think I'm talking about, you know, um, things that are sort of really fundamental uh, social justice issues and they're not partisan, you know? And so that's kind of uh, where I got, where I, I came to that. Um, and then a lot of the, the work that I wanted to to do um had these kind of activist elements. um, And so that's kind of why I ended up sort of in that camp of social justice comedy. Um, But I, uh, I, I basically, you know, I would, I I went to grad school for um, African American studies and public policy. I got two master's degrees because you need both of those to be a comedian. And (laughs) I ended up, um, I ended up, you know, I, I, I interned for Charlie Rangel and for Hillary Clinton, and I was a policy advisor for the city. But the entire time I was doing comedy on the side. So I would like leave grad school uh, to do sets downtown. And, um, and that's kind of, you know, uh, I, I always had a foot, um, in that world. And when, uh, when it came time for me to, to, to be real about what I wanted in life, um, I ended up, you know, um, going full-time into comedy um, and and leaving my uh, job that had a 401k plan Um, so that was fun but I think the thing that was important for me and there's something and it's really inspiring to hear Katie talk about this because I always felt like there was just some narcissism to comedy that wasn't in the public interest and I wanted to be a public servant right like ever since I was a kid I was like I'm gonna go into government and my whole thing is gonna be like helping my neighbors building community like building policies that help people that was everything to me and to admit that I wanted to be a comedian instead felt like such a degree of narcissism so I think part of what I did to be able to make myself like wake like you know, be able to sleep at night was to uh, bring the, the activism into the comedy. Um, And, uh, and that, that's kind of and I, you know, and I, and, and I've done stuff like, you know, I I, I've sued the MTA for the right to put up funny posters um, in the New York city subway system. Um, And the the MTA is the Metropolitan Transit Authority that runs the, the, a lot of the transit in New York, Um, you know, and I, and I won that Um, I've done, you know, I've gone, I've, I've taken out ads, um, in places like Charlottesville, um, get you know asking people not to go to Trump properties. Like I, I but I do all of these things with um, with a comedic bent. Uh, so um, so those are those are just some of the things I've done, um, just kind of in the activist space.
3: And do you see the messaging being? More well received uh, amongst people who might not already, you know, be privy to the issues that you're trying to bring to bring forth. And I know that you've kind of developed some social justice comedy rules that you feel like it's kind of like a formula that works to to kind of bridge the divide, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, like if you take the case of the posters, the posters we were trying to put up, um, you know they were promoting a film called The Muslims Are Coming that was coming out at that time on Netflix. And, um, you know, The Muslims Are Coming is just like, I, I followed a group of, of comedians, uh, Muslim, I rounded up a bunch of Muslim comedians in a nonviolent way and we went around the country um, and we did shows and then we had people like Jon Stewart and, and Lewis Black, like wax hilarious about Islamophobia. And the whole idea was to just bridge the gap between main, what a mainstream Americans might think of Muslims and actual Muslims. And um, the, the idea was just to promote that movie with these any posters about Muslims that we, we you know, and we worked with the MTA on, you know, all of the wording. Um, and they had, you know, issues with everything. You know, you couldn't use the word poop, for example. Uh, and that took out like half of our material. Um, but it, ultimately, they banned us from do- putting up the posters, saying that they were too political. And the posters themselves said stuff like, you know, uh, Muslims, uh, they invented the concept of a hospital. Okay, great. Muslims. Uh, but Grown up Muslims could do more push ups than baby Muslims. Uh, Muslims invented Justin Timberlake. You know what I mean? It, it was like, th- and at the bottom it would say one of these are true, but in my heart, all of them were true. Uh, and so these were the kinds of posters we were putting up um, to sort of really turn around the notion that Muslims aren't funny. It's a stereotype in that we can't laugh at ourselves and that we're not, you know, we wanted the kind of ridiculousness to come out. Um, and that was deemed too political. And, but the, but the fact of the matter is because we tried to get those up and because that we had ended up having to take the MTA to court, uh, that story ended up getting covered by hundreds of publications around the world who because the posters were funny wanted to cover it in their in their news outlets um and because it was comedians taking the state to court uh wanted to cover the story and so i think that kind of thing um does make the the case more palatable it brings a first amendment issue uh into people's laps in a way that may otherwise seem
2: boring
3: And I know you've both written um, because now, you know, we're not in boring times for sure right now. We're dealing with a lot of different, you know, parts of chaos, um, you could say. And so both of you kind of address that in different ways. Katie, I know you wrote an article recently about comedy during the pandemic and the question of whether it's okay to laugh about hard times or if we're wrong to seemingly make fun of something so serious. And you say those aren't the right questions. Can you talk more about that?
4: Yeah, thank you for that. And also, just as an aside, it's so sad that I have my mute button on because I'm completely laughing at Nagin and enjoying her so much, but you cannot hear my laughter. But um, I mean, who doesn't want to hear Nagin talk about Islamophobia? And make it funny. Um, so, yeah, I'm so happy for that question. I think that. Um, Uh, You know, when you think about the work that comedians do, and you just heard, I mean, having Nagin on is so brilliant because she can illustrate so many of these ideas that I'm going to talk about in a kind of scholarly way. Um, But uh, it's, you know, when we think about how comedians work, what actually gets the laugh, and there's actually some science that shows this, believe it or not, what actually gets the laugh is when we punch up and not down. And so really what we're talking about when we're talking about civic and social issues, punching up is really taking on the systems of oppression, the structural oppression. It's not, for example, if you are doing um, comedy about what it's like to be a, a person who is housing insecure, or perhaps living in poverty, you know, you're not making fun of the people, you're talking about the structures that really manufacture that kind of, Um, challenge. So when I wrote about this in the context of uh, the pandemic, you know, it was interesting to me to note that really, if you really looked at uh, about six weeks into the pandemic, and all of a sudden, like once the kind of novelty of being on Zoom had worn off, like really worn off, you could see that really what was being spread most often was either articles about the science of the of the virus because we still didn't know very much about it. And then the other thing that was really being shared all over the place was comedy. It was coping comedy. It was comedy about the government response, uh, punching up, of course, um, uh, not down. And so really the comedy in that way was functioning as a kind of catharsis and a source for resilience, and it still is in many ways. Um, and we've been working on comedy throughout the pandem- pandemic. Actually, um, some of it is in collaboration with Nagin. Um, so we've been pretty busy doing that. But just to connect back to the book, you know, one of the things that we did in the book, it's not just about the science of why comedy engages us so uniquely in social justice issues and how important it is to break down social barriers and all of that; those kinds of ideas but we also interviewed social justice leaders and comedians who actually are actively collaborating together. And what we heard over and over again from social justice groups, who by the way, are dealing with the hardest topics, gun violence, um, uh, immigration policy and immigration related discrimination, climate change, which has been rendered very boring for us, right? So, but what they said over and over again, when we asked the question, how are you using comedy for some of the hardest topics and why are you making that choice? And what we heard over and over again, I believe this is chapter six of the book, is uh, what we heard is that, you know, we can't sustain these kinds of movements, many movements and large movements, we can't sustain them on anger and fear and rage alone because two things happen. A, people fatigue out of that, And B, it becomes just psychologically very exhausting. And also in some cases you end up just talking to the echo chamber that will actually tune in to those kinds of messages. So comedy can actually reach what we call incongruent audiences. So audiences who may not have, you know, necessarily in Nagin's case is a good example. Maybe they weren't tuning in to hear about Islamophobia, Islamophobia, but Nagin is really funny and you can listen to her talk about anything. And then suddenly you're learning something and maybe processing something a little bit differently. So we did hear that these activists really felt like they needed hope and optimism and light and resilience, particularly when we're talking about traditionally marginalized communities. And so comedy is this really cultural superpower in that way that can both provide resilience to a community that is feeling traumatized but also reach across and find people who maybe are not listening to that community.
3: Yeah, and so it is—it is really serving, you know, its strong purpose. And Niggin, you wrote a funny but is also a thoughtful blog post back in June about the art of being non-essential as a comedian. You know, and now that we're in this forced labeling with the pandemic of essential and non-essential workers, um, can you share some more of those reflections? Because at the same time that you're saying that there is also an essential quality you know, it's everything Katie was saying of being able to uplift, of being able to kind of help just navigate these times, right?
5: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, my, my point was that I'm, as a comedian, I'm a, a definitely a non-essential uh, worker, like that if you find yourself in a bunker, right, at some point in this right. situation, which we won't, but if you find yourself in a bunker at any point in your life and there's a comedian there or a magician, um, then you should definitely eat the comedian, right? Because we are not useful. We can't fix toilets or build infrastructure, um, the only thing we could do is like provide some bright observations on what's going on when you're rebuilding society after the bunker. Um, and so I think uh, it, but but the one thing that I do think Katie brought up an excellent point that my I feel like my job right now um, as a comedian and 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 note that all comedians are essentially actors as well. Right. Is even if we don't feel that great about this pandemic, we have to embody optimism. That is what I. I view my job as right now, because the headlines are trying to bring us down. Also some of the irresponsibility of the media and making Hay out of things that aren't hay, and with headlines like "Are all the world's great cities over?" "Is Kawasaki disease going to kill all children?" You know what I mean? Like these are the types of things that we're seeing that are also irresponsible on the part of some media, and it's making people crazy. So I think my job is to be is to is to calm everybody down and give them hope and optimism, and for me not to be mired in in the muck um, and and bring people back with me to the lightness because they're they're getting way. Too much news uh, that, I- and not even like news that's useful. They're just getting way too many headlines from all the very many different sources, and too many calls from their in-laws. You know what I mean? <laughs> that are panicking. So I think it's the job of the comedian now to be a bright spot, um, and I take that really seriously. That said, if you're stuck with me in the bunker, I understand. If I'm your next meal,
3: <laughs> well, I know. Definitely for me it's it's also just comedy's been a source of being able to recognize like, am I the only one that's thinking this? Am I going crazy? And it's it's comforting to be able to look and be like, all right, I'm not the only one that thinks that's absurd. So I I definitely see how it's that community building and just also helping kind of you make it through through these trying times. So we're talking about the role comedy can play in helping us make sense of the world and also help bridge divides and achieve social change. I'm talking with Katie bourne Chatu. She's executive director at the Center for Media and Social Impact at American University and co-author of A Comedian and an Activist Walk into a Bar, The Serious Role of Comedy in Social Justice. Also been joined by Nagin Farsad, comedian and host of podcast Fake the Nation, author of How to Make White People Laugh and a regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. How is humor helping you make sense of the world these days? Tell us who's inspiring you to laugh and maybe see a political or social issue differently than before. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can post your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter. We're at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And we will be back with more laughter and comedy and conversation after the break. I'm Ariana Prail and Firmina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mariana Prail and Fermina Kim. We've been talking about the role in comedy Uh, that comedy can play in helping us make sense of the world. I'm joined by Katie bourne Chatou, executive director at the Center for Media and Social Impact at American University. She's co-author of A Comedian and an Activist Walk into a Bar, the Serious Role of Comedy in Social Justice. Also joined by comedian Nagin Farsad. And now I'm joined by Margaret Cho, comedian, actor, and host of the podcast The Margaret Cho. Her recent stand-up show is Fresh Off the Bloat, Her 1994 sitcom All-American Girl was the first network sitcom to feature a predominantly Asian-American cast. And Rolling Stone magazine named her one of the top 50 best stand-up comics of all time. Welcome to Forum, Margaret Cho.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much.
3: So we've been talking about the role social uh, that comedy can play in social justice, and you're a comedian who hasn't shied away from, from politics. What's your take on the role of comedy, especially in these current times, and also especially with the increase in really overt acts of anti-Asian racism we've been seeing in this age of COVID?
2: Oh, comedy is so important, I think, because, I mean, it is... Um it is the voice of the other. It's the voice of the outsider. And I think it's the one voice that can kind of prevail. It can be a voice of reason and certainly something that, um, you know, it's, it's something that, like, for a long time, I think people were very um, at ease making uh, fun of it. Asians because that we were sort of looked at as the eternal foreigner, that Asian American was this very, um, this, this, I don't know, that, that this term that didn't almost apply, that we were so not American for so long. I think because of our natural um, invisibility within America, that our innate uh, um, somehow applied foreignness in American culture, I think because... We almost didn't exist. I'm not sure if this is like a lasting impression of World War II or um, some kind of um, eternal foreignness that we inherently possess within American culture or the inherent racism that exists within American culture. I'm not exactly sure what it is. But the anti-Asian-ness or the the continual uh, presence of the China virus. That's what they call it. Like That Trump calls it the China virus, that he still calls it to this day the China virus. It's so offensive. And it's pressing this racist agenda towards Asian Americans as if we're the cause of this. It's a very strange thing. So humor, I think, is the only weapon that we can actively use against it. And um, yet it's still something that I think people are uncomfortable with, too. Like, oh, you can't joke about that. That's racist. Even if an Asian American is joking about it, it's still somehow questioned.
3: Right. Do you have a memory that you can share where you saw kind of the impact of your comedy of either, you know, maybe rubbing someone the wrong way um, that but then also helping shift a point of view or opening someone's eyes, kind of having that effect of social change, you know, in the maybe in the smaller sense of just Again, opening hearts and minds, not necessarily, you know, legislation wise. Well,
2: I was making these series of videos about quarantine with my mother and um, about how, like, you know, she was watching these videos of CNN and and how the the zoos were in trouble because nobody was donating or um, going. And so they were they were having to, like, feed some animals to other animals to keep them alive. And my mother said, "Oh, that makes me so hungry. What, what time is the zoo open?" And then, so I made a video about it. And then they were, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow me to show it on the. Um, it was like this whole series of videos to, like, to help essential workers. And they were like, "Well, that's racist against Asians." And, and I was like, "Well, I'm Asian, so I'm, I'm actually like, do, I'm, I'm, I'm either the, the whole thing is like." You know maybe it's really us making fun of ourselves like that's kind of like the that sort of the white silencing around asians making fun of themselves is like causing the problem of like asian invisibility like that to me is like something that is um a weird thing of like oh it's because we're not allowed to show ourselves as we are or actually speak of ourselves as we are. That's kind of where I see the disconnect of Mm. the invisibility of not being able to see ourselves. That's where we're, we're like at a loss. And so that's kind of like, I think the problem.
3: Yeah. And that bridges to kind of my next question of wanting to hear you talk about representation as an affirmative, affirmative act of social change in that way. Because you talked about what you've talked about in the past what it's like to be a trailblazer for Asian Americans in comedy. And just, yeah, can you speak a little bit more about that?
2: I think it's really like the um, the cause of like, just seeing ourselves, you know, that even acceptance of stereotypes, I think is really like the, the problem of like, we have to like accept anything. Like I'm from the generation that um, I would accept any role to play on TV or movies, whatever. I didn't care because I was so grateful for any job. And then, you know, the generation after me would be more discerning about what they would play or what they would see themselves as because they had more opportunities. And so it's kind of like that, like, you know, you wanted to um, just be seen. And that was really like the, the, the motive just to be seen and really we have we haven't i don't know like we just haven't come that far i i still don't see that much asian representation in in any arena i mean i think that you know we have some more things like out there some more representation in the, in, in in sort of like this you know as long as i've been in show this is like 35 years but um there still needs to be more yeah.
3: Well, let's go to a caller. Christina in San Francisco. Join us. Oh, I think we lost Christina. Actually, we're going to Richard in Piedmont.
0: Uh, let me see. I wanted to call in and, you know, I have personal experience with the engagement of comedy and its relevance to uh, to to social engagement. My son, who grew up in the Bay Area, his name is Ox Turner, uh, started doing open mic events, and um, he grew over the years. Now he's producing his own shows in Santa Barbara. But his engagement in comedy has led him to do podcasts in his job, and that podcast has allowed him to gain experience, and now they're doing an in-house discussion on anti-racism. Um, so comedy has really led him to a more social engagement at work and in the community. And so I wanted to reflect that as an advantage of comedy. Sometimes you can reach more people to give you experience and a way to cross the bridge from entertainment into community engagement. So his podcast is called Holla at Me Podcast, Ox Turner, OX. T U R -R. And again, it's an example of the relevance of comedy in particularly today's um, crisis communities.
3: Yeah, well, thank you for that shout out, Richard. And Margaret and Nagin, you both have podcasts. I'm wondering, Margaret first, and then Nagin, if you want to just speak to kind of what that platform has done, especially now that you're not able to tour and, you know, with shelter in place and all that, um, just kind of what that audience has brought.
2: Oh, it's great. I mean, it's a place to uh, where you can still continue to create and also a place where comedians can really kind of get together and vent and talk about how difficult it is, you know, because we're all just kind of encased in amber, you know, we're like stuck in carbonite or whatever, you know, because we're just like, it. it it's it's really strange to not be able to perform and we get to connect through that you know, through Zoom or Skype or whatever, to talk about the pain of that—it's very, it's it's startling and terrible.
3: Yeah, Nagin.
2: I you know and can I just say it's it's so thrilling to
5: hear um, Margaret talk about all of this stuff um, because what what she has done and that um, generation of comedians uh, among there were so few like any any ethnic comedian in that generation but what they did that was so important was norm building that it like became like oh I can become a comic because you know Margaret Cho is a comic so what's the big deal you know and that is what is so like, absolutely critical, and she's still doing it. And then people like me are now also doing it too. So, the more of people like me and Margaret you see on TV and in on podcasts and on radio, uh, you just, the no, more normal it becomes. It stops becoming this weird thing, you know, it be, and the more voices like ours, you know, are in the room, we can say, well, you know, like long duck uh, dong may have been funny at that time, but we don't really need that kind of characterization anymore. In movies like 16 candles. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we do something more nuanced and three dimensional, you know? So that's kind of, we play that role. We get to be, um, in the room more now and I think it's, it's we're starting to see the the seeds um, of that, you know, not enough for sure, um, but we're starting to see the seeds of like three dimensionality um, in, in like some of these minority communities on television and isn't it so amazing and isn't it so entertaining, you know what I mean? Like I, I yeah I can watch an Indian American character on like a YA TV show on Netflix and completely, completely connect with that character um, because it doesn't, every you know, and, and so can white people and it's fine. <laughs> you know I mean, and it's entertaining and it makes me laugh. Um, and as as far as podcasts, uh, just like, thank God that there is a medium
2: that's like, right, Margaret, like letting us have something to do <laughs> during this time. I know. It's so fantastic because it's very, it's really tough. You know, we really, um, exist so much in our stage life, in our onstage performance. Comedians really need that stage time as oxygen to survive. So we're really, um, you know, we're really on borrowed time in our existence now without that stage time. You know, it's very, uh, it's very hard for comedians to exist without that.
3: So I'm um, going to read a comment, and then I want to play a cut and, and get your your brief take on it, um, Margaret. I So we have Beth writes, I dislike how cancel culture has affected comedy. I miss comics like George Carlin, Eddie Murphy, Joan Rivers, and so many others. Even Mel Brooks's hilarious stuff wouldn't be allowed today because someone would be offended. Um, and I want to play the cut of... Uh, Comedian Amber Ruffin, who's a writer and comedian on Late Night with Seth Meyers, has her own show coming out this fall, actually. Um, And in this clip, she's kind of skewering Fox News' or formerly Fox News' Megyn Kelly for some controversial statements about blackface that she made that ultimately got her show canceled. Um, So let's take a listen to that.
5: How are you going to have a bunch of white people sit together and figure out what's racist? What people don't get to decide what's racist? If I punch you, I don't decide if it hurts or not. You do. And it won't because I'm not punching a white lady because I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> Megan Kelly said, Blackface wasn't racist when I was a kid. You're 47. Racism wasn't invented 40 years ago. 40 years ago, they were just getting into the swing of it, baby! <laughs> Today, it's
0: perfected.
3: So I wanted to get your response kind of to, you know, the way that Amber kind of took that that subject on, but also just this bigger idea of of cancel culture, because I know you've had some opinions um, that you've shared on that, Margaret.
2: I love it. I think that's great. I think it's great. I think cancel culture really has a lot of things going for it. I think it really does. It does good service to um, the community of unserviced. You know, there's a lot of good things that cancel culture does because it's really about um giving voice to people who haven't had a voice for so long you know that that um it really is important in a lot of ways and it's us learning to speak up for ourselves people who have been discriminated against for so long but then um i do also enjoy being offended i like offensive comedy. I do. I think it's like, there. I have a case for it. I love Don Rickles. I love Joan Rivers. I love, you know, Joan Rivers was my mentor for most of my career. So I, I do have a great fondness for being offended. And I, I do think that there's a place for it. So, um, you know, I think that we'll find balance. Um, you know, I think we're just like, you know, um, as in pubescence, you do have your voice crack. Well, I think um, that some of us do, some of us don't. You know, in pubescence, you do make sort of those cracks and creaks in your adolescence. I think that's when we're at in um, cancer cultures in their adolescence. And then you'll get into this sort of adulthood in cancer culture, and that's where we're headed. So that's a, the cancer culture will reach maturity where we'll find the balance. And I, 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 feel like that's coming. Well, I totally
5: agree. It's we're in this weird guinea pig generation where, like, we're we're trying to figure out um, how to you talk and be sensitive and be inclusive but still be funny and biting and and dirty you know we're trying to figure all of these things out um while still respecting like humans and it's uh it's tough because we've lived in this other set of rules for so long like we all grew up in the same patriarchy right so like i'm just as likely to be sexist as as any you know dude um and so it's it's hard to change those um, you know those habits, and I think when people get, you know, complain about, oh, every all the everyone's like, you know, um, the speech is being changed or whatever, like. I think they're just experiencing the growing pains of evolving like and 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 guess what in the turn of the century you couldn't basically say anything you were judged constantly and you had to like wear a huge skirt with like ruffles underneath so there's a lot I mean <laughs> you're always evolving and this is just part of it
3: well Margaret yeah. Cho I know that we have to let you go but thank you so much for for joining the segment Margaret Cho comedian actor and host of the podcast the Margaret Show her recent stand-up show is fresh off the bloat. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now I wanted to bring in another cut that we have. This one is from comedian Hannah Gadsby with Nanette, um, and I think it'll spark some more discussion. Um, and I want to hear a little bit more of your analysis when we come out of this, Katie.
6: I have been questioning, you know,
3: this whole comedy thing. I don't. I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. Um,
6: you know, for the past year I've been questioning it and reassessing And I think it's healthy for an adult human to take stock, pause and reassess. Uh, and when I first started doing the comedy, over a decade ago, my favourite comedian was Bill Cosby. <laughs> there you go, it's very healthy to reassess, isn't it? <laughs> and I, I've built a career out of self-deprecating humour. That's what I've built my career on, and I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand? (laughs) Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to
3: myself or anybody who identifies with me. So Hannah Gadsby did something pretty unique with that kind of comedy slash sociology lecture. It's kind of how it ended up being described where she openly called out her past stand-up acts in that way and the self-deprecating humor and the tradition of kind of landing the joke before it gets too real. Um, And it sparked a new level of conversation, I think, of open conversation about the power comedy can have and how it can be used. Um, So Katie, I wanted to hear some of your thoughts, because I know you also talk about this in your book.
4: Yeah, thank you. And it it actually bridges with what um, Margaret and were just talking about with the power of representation. And I should say that I believe in my own work, and we write pretty specifically about this in our book, representation of uh, people who have not had access to the cultural marketplace in the way that white men have, that is social change. That is social progress. Simply hearing the lived experiences, sure, in ways that are funny, but that absolutely matters when we think about social progress. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of what um, of what Hannah Gadsby did there. And it's a very, very moving piece. And, and if you watch it and you don't cry and laugh, I, I wonder what kind of human you are. But um, I think that she actually is doing a different kind of comedy that we don't quite have the semantics for yet. And so uh, we also wrote in this context in the book, we wrote about um, Hassan Minaj's Homecoming King. And I think those two projects are actually doing something quite similar. So Homecoming King is also writing from, you know, it's a deep, it's it's stand-up kind of, but it's really this humorous storytelling, almost like a one-person theatrical show, not just stand-up comedy, but is inviting people into a kind of pain of representation and then also making it kind of gentle enough to invite people along for the ride, which is such a good example of how comedy actually works in social change. So part of what I would um, kind of tie that up in a bow with is something that we write about uh, this concept of cultural citizenship. And this is not our concept, but you know, when you write a book like this, you use your own research and you cite a lot of other really smart people that have things to say that are close to your topic. And so cultural citizenship is this really beautiful theory. It actually comes from um, Latinx studies from the 80s and 90s, but it's this idea, broadly speaking, that one can have the sort of benefits of quote-unquote citizenship, right? Like you can get a job, you know, you can vote, etc. Um, but if you are so marginalized in the cultural marketplace and you don't see yourself, but there's only one of you, then in fact, you don't really have the feeling of belonging. Now, comedy is really important. Portrayals, of marginalized people are important. So this is not a concept that just belongs to comedy, of course. But comedy, um, one of the things that's so important about comedy, when we think about how it actually persuades us psychologically as audiences, is that comedy actually can break down social taboos and actually bridge topics that many audiences maybe haven't dealt with before. And there's some research, again, we write about it in the book, Um, there's research that shows that for example, a beautiful study on gay and lesbian characters on television that um, the people who are most affected by feeling a kind of connection to affection for uh, normalization of the people who most felt that way were people who had the least exposure to those, ki- to those individuals in their real lives. So that's a really, really powerful Effective of comedy. I think it has everything to do with what Nagin and Margaret were talking about, which is telling one's lived experiences, even often sharing uh, the pain of some of those experiences, but doing it in a funny way can actually create this connection with people who are not like your community. And that's very valuable and especially, I mean, that's always valuable, but think about where we are as a country right now. We can barely even hear one another, because our divides are so
0: dramatic.
3: All right, let's go to caller Jim in Atlanta next. Jim, you're on the air.
0: Hey, thank you. I just want to say, you know, as a both over 60 white male aspiring comedian, you know, with Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, and others, Moms Mabley is my kind of my inspiration. I find you can use comedy, too, to bridge a gap Most of my audience is often younger and they see me and they would figure I'd be wearing from Atlanta. I'd be wearing a MAGA hat. And when some of my routine goes 180 from that, you know, if I can get them to think for a minute that not everybody's your enemy and that you can talk to each other, um, I think that would be great. I think that's one of the great things of comedy is you can get people to see people differently and start thinking and talking.
3: Great. Thanks for that comment, Jim. I'm going to read a couple others we've gotten in. Robert writes, I watched the president's news conference yesterday and frequently laughed out loud when he said things like how great we are doing against the virus and how other countries um, consult us. Come on, there is no contest for the top U.S. comic. And Vicky writes, I want to give a shout out to social justice and comedy. I so appreciate people making fun of the current situation rather than making fun of people's personal traits. I particularly love the Bay's own W. Kamau Bell, along with Trevor Noah, Dulce Sloan, and Roy Wood Jr. Um, But back to the comment about the president's just kind of being humor in and of itself. Nagin, do you have any comments on just kind of what this particular political landscape has brought about? In this particular president, <laughs> I should say.
5: Um, I honestly, I think he's brought about so much exhaustion um, for comedians because he is his own joke, right? So you don't, you know, if you if you watch episodes um, of the late night shows, they don't even really need a joke after they play one of his clips, right? And they Sarah just,
3: Cooper's like, whole thing is just really lip syncing him
5: exactly because you don't need to do more and so um, so I think he's provided a challenge in that like you know part of our job I guess is to just highlight some of the ridiculous things like an archivist and then replay them you know um, so that's I think uh, I think the challenge is how do we um, take it beyond that and then also I don't think we want to see and it's not uplifting and it doesn't necessarily help to see comedy that's about the jerks of America you know what i mean like we where, where can we bring everyone in on the joke. How can we, and like your previous caller said, you know, how can we defy expectations, you know? And I, I one of the favorite things I love to do is go, you know, to to red states and perform comedy there. And I, I was in a, and um, like a relatively uh, red part of Virginia. Um, and I, I, I ran into a woman, I interviewed her, I was doing a thing for moveon.org. And I interviewed her on camera and we were, she was clearly a Trump supporter. And, uh, and you know, and I said, what do you think about the Muslim ban? You know, like my parents, um, live here. My entire family is in Iran. And if something were to happen to my parents, their family cannot come to visit. Their family cannot come to see them. What, what do you think about that happening to my parents? You know, and we were having a great, lovely conversation for like 20 minutes and I hit her with this and she just didn't know what to do. Um, and she was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she just, just kept saying, I'm so sorry. And I think it's disarming to be, to, for, 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 to talk to the other side in a human way. I wasn't trying to change her from being a Trump supporter, but I was trying to get her to kind of see where I'm coming from. And I think um, that's really helpful.
3: Well, another comment from Jamie, she writes, my wife, uh, my wife and I local clowns. are local clowns or circus comedians. Clowning is an ancient art that often makes social commentary. Our current tactic is to lead by example, poking fun at ourselves and using our skills to inspire and uplift. We love Maria Branford and Trevor Noah. And that is bringing us to the end of the hour already. It's been fun having both on, Katie Boram Chetu, Executive Director, Center for Media and Social Impact at American University, and co-author of A Comedian and an Activist Walk into a Bar, The Serious Role of Comedy in Social Justice. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Oh, thank you so much. It was such
3: a pleasure. And Nagin Farsad, comedian and host of the podcast Fake the Nation, author of How to Make White People Laugh, and regular on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Thanks so much for joining us, Nagin. And thanks also to comedian Margaret Cho, who was with us earlier. I'm Ariana Prale, and Fermina Kim. Hope you have some good laughs this weekend.